Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Ain't That a Lot of Love, recorded by Homer Banks and co-written by our guest, Dini Parker. I know the desert can hold all the love that I feel in my heart for you. While still in high school, Dini Parker won a Memphis talent contest and an audition for Jim Stewart at Stax Records. He signed her and released her debut single on the Volt label in 1963. The self-penned My Imaginary Guy became a regional hit, but the life of a touring artist was not for Parker. She became the first black employee at Stax's satellite record shop before joining the label staff as the company's first publicist in 1964. Learning on the job while studying journalism at Memphis State, Parker eventually became the company's vice president of public affairs. One of the first female publicists in the music industry, she worked closely with Isaac Hayes, Booker T and the MGs, Rufus and Carla Thomas, Johnny Taylor, Albert King, and others. Wearing many hats at Stax, Deanie continued to write songs with colleagues such as Steve Cropper, Booker T. Jones, Eddie Floyd, Betty Crutcher, Mac Rice, Mabel John, and Homer Banks, with whom she penned the soul classic Ain't That a Lot of Love. The list of Stax artists who recorded her songs includes Otis Redding, Carla Thomas, William Bell, Sam and Dave, the Staple Singers, and more. Her other writing skills were put to use penning liner notes for classic albums such as Sam and Dave's Hold On, I'm Coming, Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign, Otis Redding's Live in Europe, and Shirley Brown's Woman to Woman. From 1987 through 1995, Dini served as the assistant director of the Memphis in May International Festival. A tireless champion of the Stax legacy, she became the first president and CEO of Soulsville, the nonprofit organization established to build and manage the Stax Museum of American Soul Music, Stax Music Academy, and the Soulsville Charter School. She was appointed to the Tennessee Arts Commission in 2004 and, in 2009, was awarded two Emmy Awards for the I Am A Man documentary short, for which she was an executive producer and the title song composer. The list of artists outside the Stax family who've covered Deanie Parker's songs includes The Rolling Stones, Elvis Costello, Darlene Love, Taj Mahal, Three Dog Night, The Flying Burrito Brothers, The Band, New York Dolls, Simply Red, Hollow Notes, and many others. She is a co-producer and co-liner notes writer of the seven-CD collection Written in Their Soul, the Stax Songwriter Demos, and she was recently announced as a 2023 inductee into the Memphis Music Hall of Fame. Part one. So, Paul, there are a lot of people who have asked me, um, what's your favorite episode that you guys have done of Songcraft? And I never have an answer because there are a bunch that come to mind. And if I did have an answer, it would probably change every day. Um, But I will say that uh, two of the kinds of interviews that I like to do uh, I like to do the ones with the super high profile people right. like Smokey Robinson, Elvis Costello, people who are, you know, big name artists. Right. Clout well chaser. That, that's you. You're a yeah. Clout they, chaser. Yeah. Absolute clout chaser. <laughs> and um, but I also like the truly behind the scenes. Right. Like the the fully like, oh, here's a person that um, you might know some of their songs, but they weren't an artist. They weren't out there getting the, the recognition. Like Randy Starr, the dentist who wrote all those Elvis movie songs. Exactly. Exactly. Right? I love kind of the extremes. Like, right. like there's a ton of folks that we've talked to that are somewhere in the middle. Uh, but I, I really love those, those kind of opposite extremes. And today uh, is an example of one where uh, Deanie Parker, who 
songwriter is just one of the many hats that she has worn over the years, but a true like champion of music in the Memphis community, a true champion of music education in the Memphis community. Um, And also somebody who was there for the whole thing. Uh, She was at Stax very early on, all the way to the end. And, uh, you know, primarily as a publicist, but also as a songwriter. And I think that she might not have gotten her due as a songwriter, if not for this relatively recent collection that came out called Written in Their Soul, the Stax Songwriter Demos. And we're sitting here looking at the the CD version of this right now. Um, It is impressive. It has, uh, I think, seven CDs. I believe it's nearly 150 tracks on this thing. Yeah. Like a lot of stuff. Yeah. And this is stuff... Uh, you know, it's rare these days that a collection, you know, you might get an anniversary edition of an album and you get a couple bonus tracks. This is like uh, a goldmine yeah. of recordings that would have otherwise been lost uh, to history. And and really, it all comes down to one person, which is Cheryl Powelski. Uh, she is a friend of mine and is a... Uh, absolutely like when she gets a, a project idea in her head, she is dogged about getting that out. And, and Cheryl is one of the most passionate people about music, uh, that I have ever known. So let me just give you a little insight from these liner notes from this box set here. Cheryl wrote kind of a, a producer's note at the beginning, and she talked about, kind of stumbling across some some of these demos years ago when she was working on putting together some some stacks compilations and things for for the 50th anniversary and she came across some hard drives and more importantly some old dat tapes and for people who don't remember <laughs> that was all the rage that yeah. was the latest technology in i guess the 90s of a way to digitize music i'm surprised those things had made it to dat by that point i thought she was just going to be finding reel to reels well, what's crazy is that all the stuff had been transferred to DAT by the publishing company. And then they threw away the reels, which Yikes. she would have much preferred, I'm sure, to yeah. have the reels, which would have been labeled. So these things were all transferred to DAT tapes along with a bunch of other random stuff. And she had 1,300 DAT tapes to go through because wow. the publisher didn't just publish the stack stuff. They published so there would be tapes with all kinds of things on them. And she listened. These dat tapes are 90 minutes a piece. She listened over the course of years to 1,390 minute dat tapes. And and you're trying to then identify who's singing. Yep. You know, they're not labeled. Yep. And some of these are probably sort of unsung heroes. It's not like you're identifying just Otis Redding's voice, but you're trying to identify the voices of these writers yeah. who may or may not have achieved prominence. Right. So that's... That's the kind of task that's not even going to exist in the world for oh, much man. longer. That that kind of, I mean, that's that's a physical task. The, yeah. The sitting and listening, the lifting of boxes. I mean, now we're sending files. I, I airdropped something to you this morning. I mean, <laughs> you so did. the the thought of of the, that's a Herculean task. Oh my gosh! And that's really where Deanie Parker kind of came in as one of the uh, producers alongside Cheryl on this collection. Um, and Deanie helped kind of like gather people together who were still around from the old stacks days. And they literally mm. would have like summits where they would sit 
together and listen to some of the stuff to just try to identify what it was. Wow. And Cheryl came up with over 600. I mean, there were, there were more, there were certain things that were just too rough, too raw, too like, and not, you know, for public consumption. She came up with more than 600 recordings. I think that she thought like, okay, these are in the pool for wow. potential inclusion. And, uh, and they whittled that down. They whittled that down. Yeah. yeah. To really just the best of the best. And, you know, they've organized it, um, of like songs that have never been heard before demos of songs that were later, you know, yeah. released. And it's, it's just this fascinating snapshot. And Cheryl has described it as kind of the last stacks story yeah. that hasn't been told. And, you know, I just have to say, like, I am a music geek. Uh, Cheryl Powelski puts me to shame in music geekery. <laughs> to have the kind of passion, yeah. to have the um, commitment, to have the years-long dedication to to see something like this come to fruition. And I think it's cool um, that that Craft Recordings, which is part of Concord, which owns the Stacks Masters catalog, that they saw how cool this was. Yeah. And they put this out. And they go, yeah, this is important. This is historically important because we're just not going to find treasure troves like yeah. this, you know, going forward. I well, don't it's, think. it's a good looking physical product as well. Um, and, you know, listening to it is funny because Dini had some comments, which we'll get into in, in the interview um, where she was kind of lamenting, oh, the guitar is out of tune yeah. on that song. And, you know, listening to it, it's not the first out of tune guitar I've ever heard on a stacks recording. <laughs> you know, um, there's something about and we even talked about this in the interview, the, the humanity that comes through yeah. these types of recordings. And I think that's what made Stack so magical is you felt like you were in the room, just the, the up close and personal nature of the way those songs are recorded. Yeah. Um, and hearing them now, it, it's it's almost like um, it's almost like you, you got everybody back together again to do stacks all over and all these songs you haven't heard and all these, you know, these songs that could have been hits and these yeah. songs that could have made it to the radio and movies and all the ways that we consumed those songs. So, um, it, it really is. It's like a, it's like a fresh find for, yeah. for lovers of, of stacks and those types of recordings. There was a great piece in the New Yorker that was like a deep dive, uh, profile of this set and just the whole story of, of stacks and, and these demos and everything. And Steve Cropper, uh, was was interviewed for that piece, and he was a bit of a, a Grinch about the whole thing. Uh, he was kind of like, if I knew that anyone would ever hear these demo tapes, I would have destroyed them. Well, Steve's guitars <laughs> were usually into. Right. He seemed to be more of the opinion of like, uh, I, I, I don't think that, you know, the, maybe almost a little embarrassed by it. Like, yeah. this was rough. It wasn't supposed to be like heard by the public. But I think that almost kind of misses the point with geeks like us who yeah. want to know everything about the process. We well, know what the final result And was. it's all about form, too. I mean, I, I would sit and watch a 20-minute highlight reel of Michael Jordan missing shots <laughs> because I like the way the man plays. Right. You know, I, I like the, just watching just the grace that, yeah. that he embodied on, on the basketball court. And it's sort of the same thing. It, it, it doesn't have to be anything close to perfect if it's got that stack spirit in it yeah. it comes across and it, and it all comes across on these recordings yeah yeah so whether michael jordan is is not on his best day or whether he's making touchdowns left and right still a lot Wait, excuse me uh <laughs> i'm not into the sports yeah <laughs> i uh, i forgot that part you, you, you almost had me there for a minute but. but i do know who michael jordan is yeah uh yeah. so one so, of the greatest so hitters of that. all time yeah. <laughs> um but i have to say uh People can go on Spotify. They can listen to some of these demos. 
I would say, because I'm old school, you should get the actual uh, physical project because yeah. it sort of looks like a, a small book the way that it's put together. The CDs are included in here. There's this great producer's note from Cheryl talking about like how this came together. And then um, there's a really in-depth essay that Deanie Parker uh, wrote with uh, Robert Gordon, who's a, a great Memphis-based writer, um, where they really kind of get into the background. They tell some of these stories. And, you know, reading that New Yorker piece and reading these liner notes uh, while listening to the music just really made it come alive uh, mm. in, in a great way. And it made me think like, you know, you never know when a demo that you made might resurface and in what context. So I don't want our listeners to be uh, Steve Cropper out there and, and feel like there's demos that they don't want getting out into the world. I want our listeners to feel like any demo that they've made is ready to pitch to an artist today, ready to give to a loved one as a gift if it's a great demo of a song they've written, or ready to be rediscovered 50, 60 years from now and, and as a lost gem and someone go, listen to this amazing song that we thought was lost to history. And I would say, you know, you can try to pull that off yeah. on your own, but if you really want to do it and you, you really want to do it right, then I think you know what I'm going to say. You should visit our sponsors, our good friends at Pearl Snap Studios. I, I had no idea that's where that was headed. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm so shocked that it ended in in no. I, I knew that's where it was going, and that's uh, you're absolutely right. We're entering an age where you know recordings like this are, are kind of forever, yeah. um, and especially if they've got any kind of internet timestamp on them or whatever. Right. So let's make them good, yeah. and we've got the chance to make them good. Yeah. And, and we've got the technology to make them good. And you don't even have to play well. Um, sorry to have to say that, but it's true. You don't have to play well because Justin and his friends, the team at Pearl Snap Studio, can play well. And they can record well. And they can turn your recording into something you'll be really proud of. And if you listen to the show, you know that Pearl Snap Studios is a longtime sponsor. Maybe you've been hearing us talk about them for a long time and, and you haven't quite made that leap yet. There's nothing wrong with checking them out. You can just ask some questions. There's no obligation. Go to PearlSnapStudios.com. And if you tell them that Songcraft sent you, you'll actually get a discount. Part two. Deanie, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, Scott. Well, it's really great to talk with you. And I, I want to start out by talking about Written in Their Soul, the Stax Songwriter Demos. And uh, for folks who aren't already aware of it, this is a project that Cheryl Pawelski has been working on for many years, and uh, one that has finally come to fruition with a lot of involvement uh, from you as, as co-producer and co-liner notes writer. This is a project that you, uh, is very much something that you were a, a crucial part of the team for. Um, tell us a bit about what that project is and, and how extensive it is and kind of your role in, in helping bring that all together. I have to... Uh pinch myself when I realized that it happened hmm. um, because Cheryl Pawalski planted the seed and um, she continued to water it and to till the soil around the seed for a number of years. And of course, this was when I was uh, president and CEO of the Soulsville Foundation. Cheryl would frequent Memphis. She was either on a panel or serving on a committee or coming into Memphis uh, to uh, do some 
worked at one of the studios. And whenever she would come to town, she would send me a text or an email or call in advance and say, you know, let's hook up. She and I then talked about many of the songs that were in the vault at Concord. And of course, you know, Concord owns the Stax Boat catalog. Right. And um, she did not say anything more than that. We just had a general conversation about, gosh, you know, I can remember this and so on and so on. And so she began to dig. She is uh, a lot more uh, thorough and effective than Sherlock Holmes ever dreamed of being. <laughs> and, uh, and then ensuing conversations would have been around the notion that she had discovered some things and she was excited about some of those songs and motivated to pursue the project to another level. And through the years, Scott, this woman doggedly pursued every avenue to convince anybody who needed to be persuaded to take a closer look at what was in that vault in the category of stacks demos to warrant compiling the best of what was there and packaging it for release in a special kind of way. And right. she never let go of that concept. Mm. And it drove her in the midst or in the back of all of the other things that she had on her plate. She always kept this front and center, I do believe. And then uh, before the pandemic, she and I really had some serious discussions about what it could be. Mm. And we uh, would from time to time talk about uh, where these uh, artists, composers, and their offspring might reside and how and who would approach them to uh, to explain what it was we we sought to do and uh, to to get permission to use these songs. I mean, all of the things that you go through when you know you have to clear, songs for licensing yeah. or whatever has to be done. Right. Uh, I realized about two and a half, three years ago that, you know, she was on a racetrack <laughs> and, um, and, and she had been, she and her engineer, if you will, had been editing and listening to thousands of hours of music and hundreds and hundreds of tapes. And she was pretty, she knew what she had and she was pretty clear about the continuity or how the final piece would look. And um, and then she, you know, she and I decided, and it was at her invitation actually, that that I came aboard and, and really was a lot more engaged than I had imagined I would be when she unveiled her concept initially yeah and and i found myself around the clock talking to uh, these artists and their offspring or just doing whatever there was that needed to be done mm. to make sure that all the i's were dotted and the t's were crossed and 
and and what you have in written in their souls, the Stax songwriter demos, is the result of devotion to Stax music. It is um, a salute to the songwriters, uh, most of whom would never have been recognized had it not been for this final product. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's a heartwarming effort to be honest with you. And, and I certainly um, have a great deal of appreciation and respect for Concord that has the catalog because, you know, they have, uh, they have embraced our visions, our dreams, especially with this project, they recognize the value of it, and they have afforded us an opportunity to realize one of the most interesting, um, authentic products that they have in their possession. And they might never have known what they had if they had not said yes to Cheryl Kowalski. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and Cheryl, there's a great profile in The New Yorker, and, and she cites hearing the demo of the song Until I Lost You as really the catalyst that kind of sent her on this quest you know, to, to tell what maybe is the last stack story that hasn't been properly told. I mean, and that song is one that you wrote with Mac Rice. He's best known for writing hits like Mustang Sally, Respect Yourself, and Cheaper to Keeper. And But the demo the demo actually sounds like a fully produced record with strings and, and horns and everything. Remember about that song in particular? Well, Paul, what I remember is not a lot. It's hmm. just that I do recall that we had two studios, and after I left the primary location at 926 East Macklemore and all the administrative offices moved to Union Avenue Extended, um, when I would write, when I continued to write, uh, 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 after Studio A became so unbelievably busy. It was operating 24 hours a day. We had Studio B, which was which we kind of sort of treated like a demo studio. And so I remember that Mac and I, he was in town, and we were writing some songs, a couple of songs, if I remember correctly. It might have been more than that. And I also remember that Al Jackson Jr. was producing a new group called March Wind. Hmm. And so we had a song, I don't know which one it was that was first, Mac and I. And uh and I don't remember if Al was intentionally our producer, or if he just happened to be in the studio that day and we had a conversation and we let him hear some of what we were doing and he thought, well, let's, you know, 
rally the troops here and see what we can make of this kind of thing, which is the way some things came together at Stacks yeah. in the studio. Um, and so I remember that Mac and I wrote the song, and then we decided that we would become March Wind, Mac Rice and I. Huh. Um, we didn't want to be recording artists, that is, in the sense of going on the road and having to promote the product. We were just seeking a name under which we could record a couple of things. And Al Jackson decided that he would produce it or he he either welcomed the opportunity or made the suggestion. I don't know which one it was, but but that is how that song came about. Hmm. It was because Al was a full time producer and it was easier for him to be able to request musicians or whatever the mechanics were that were needed to uh, uh, make this uh, a finished demo, which which is a good thing because Mag did you heard Mag Rice on that guitar? <laughs> yeah. Mag Rice never tuned that guitar from the day <laughs> he arrived at Stax Records until the doors closed. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I thought about it in years since and concluded that it wasn't the melody because his vocals created the melody. The guitar was more for rhythm than it was anything. I mean, because it didn't matter what key you came in <laughs> and sat with Matt to either do the demo or to write with him, the key was always the same. <laughs> and so, That's and it really, you know, it drove me nuts, but it really didn't matter when we knew we had a good song yeah, yeah. because we were so into the rhythm and the message and our vocal melody and the, you know, and the feeling that just, uh, having an opportunity to write with Mac Rice inspired. Mm. Yeah. And, and so that, that's really what happened there. Wow. Um, well, we definitely want to talk some more about this amazing, uh, demo collection in a bit, but first want to just get to know a little bit more, uh, about your background. I understand that you were born in Mississippi, uh, but grew up in Ohio. Talk about some of the musical influences that you were soaking up when you were a kid. You know, some of the things that, that caught your ear that probably influenced your musical sensibilities going forward. In my grandparents' home, where my mother was living while my father was in, uh, he was overseas in World War II. What I heard was the spirituals, the Negro gospels, the blues. That was about the size of it, I think. Yeah. And, and so when I went to Ohio, and it had everything to do with the fact that my grandfather who was a pivotal character in my life, uh, knew that if I stayed in Mississippi, I would never have access to the kind of education that he wanted me to wow. have. Yeah. That's it in a, in, you know, in a nutshell. Wow. And so he asked my mother's oldest sister and her husband if they would allow me to live with them and to go to school. And interestingly, most of my classmates were white. Many of my friends were white. All of my teachers were white, female, and unmarried, hmm. as was my piano teacher. 
it was a total diversion because on the edge of Kentucky, near the hills of West Virginia, and in Ohio, right there at that apex, the only radio station we had was WIRO. And the only thing they played around the clock seven days a week was country music. Hmm. And a lot of the music unique to what you would have heard in that part of the country. Now, it was good music, and I appreciated it. But when I wanted to hear the music that I grew up listening to for the pre-kindergarten, it was either at my church or at an African-American concert there in Ironton, Ohio. Those were the, were the only opportunities. But then my mother broke the spell when she sent me a shiny new transistor radio. Ah. And I learned that at night around nine o'clock, if I turned to a station that was beaming out of Nashville, Tennessee, whose call letters were WLAC, mm-hmm on which John R. Richburg and Hoss Allen were broadcasting. They had this Randy's mail order uh, store, and they would play the kind of music that was unique to my culture. Uh, and, and that was rhythm and blues. Yeah. The first songs that I heard, and the one that perhaps turned my head, and I've never looked back since, was Otis Redding. Huh. And these are my Mm. And and I was fascinated by that. And then I heard Chuck Jackson and I heard those wonderful uh groups who had that phenomenal harmony. All I mean the James Brown era and, and all of those guys. Oh, yeah, just such an incredible era for music. Um I understand that you then moved to Memphis as a junior in high school in the early 1960s. Uh, where you put together a group called the Valadors and entered a talent contest at the Daisy Theater on the legendary Beale Street um, that earned you an audition at Stax Records. Um, so tell us a bit about that move to Memphis and how you kind of were set on this new path. I learned that that was where that Otis Redding song that I heard on WLAC was rec- had been recorded huh. wow. at Stax Records. And so I enrolled in the same high school that Carla Thomas graduated from and um, entered a talent contest. They were a dime a dozen. Huh. And now you'd be hard-pressed to find one. <laughs> yeah. And um, won first prize, the Valadors and I did. And the first place was uh, an audition with Jim Stewart and Jim Stewart was impressed I remember we did a Mary Wells song and once we had concluded although he expressed how impressed he was he he informed us that if we were interested in becoming recording artists um, we had to have original music my eyebrow went up of course this was a new term to me <laughs> And so not to be outdone because my dream was to be a singer. Uh, And now that I thought there was an opportunity available, perhaps, I determined that I wanted to be a recording artist as well. And not to be discouraged, I wrote 
my imaginary guy hmm. and taught it to the Valadors and called Jim Stewart and said, we, we have an original song we'd like for you to hear. And he was genuinely impressed because Jim was not, um, he was not a phony. He was the real deal, you know? Hmm. And he said, uh, yeah, this is a good song. This is really a good song. And he uh, informed us then that if we, if we wanted to be recording artists, that we had to be prepared not only to have an A-side, but we needed a B-side as well. <laughs> Can't just write one. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that because when that when that record came out in nineteen sixty three, you had My Imaginary Guy, which you wrote uh on the A side. <laughs> side you have until you return which is another song you wrote and as you say you hadn't you hadn't been writing songs you know up to that point you'd been singing um but you hadn't been writing what do you think it was that allowed you to just kind of flip that switch and suddenly become a songwriter i mean you seem to just be able to jump right in well scott as i told you when i lived in ohio i was i had a music teacher and she was trying to teach me piano. <laughs> and my uh, the songs that she taught me, I mean, they were all necessary because you, you have to understand the, the mechanics of of, uh, of of how to read music and so on. Well, I could read it, but I wasn't feeling it. I, you know, the the classicals, the European classicals. I, I just, you know, it just wasn't there for me. Yeah, my aunt would would. Uh, discouraged me often from picking out the melodies to songs, learning to play by ear. That is what I was really doing. Although I didn't know what it was, I couldn't explain it. Sure, It was learning to play by ear. That was my informal training. Huh. And so I've always had melodies in my head. I mean, it just happens to me. It is a presumption on my part that I transferred that desire to be able to put my fingers on the keys and to hear what a melody for a song could be. Yeah. And and because I am not a studied professional songwriter. I don't get bogged down in the technicalities and what is appropriate and the fingering and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I listen for the melody. Yeah. I even when I was writing songs with the people who partnered with me, my strength was always in the melody and the rhythm. Right. I could deal with the first verse, I'd have the concept and what have you, but as you can tell, I tend to be loquacious and I would have a a challenge editing songs and completing the lyrics for a concept so that it satisfied me. Yeah. Because I, I know that in order to have a good song, it you have to have strong lyrics. 
you have to have a concept that appeals to the masses. But I loved a song that had a memorable melody mm. also. Yeah. Yeah. As far as sort of bu building those broader instincts as a songwriter, you know, when you started actually writing for other artists, it first of all, that happened very quickly. I mean, it was March of 1963 when you had your first cut as a writer for another artist. That was William Bell releasing Just As I Thought. that with William and Steve Cropper you had literally just started writing solo I mean did you already start to feel like once you started to work with collaborators that oh I'm starting to like pick up some of the things that they're doing as writers and and were you sort of learning as you were getting these cuts um Stax Records was a laboratory for all of us hmm. for all of us in every aspect of the music business because we were kids all of us um and so to be in that environment all day and 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 it was such an exciting opportunity that it fueled your energy and it stimulated your creativity and you just wanted to be there 24 hours a day if you could possibly mm -hmm. so yes I listened to all of the musicians. I listened to the artists. And I think maybe, you know, Steve Gropper was a unique individual because Steve was there around the clock and on weekends as well. Hmm, right. Well, he was learning all of the dynamics of the industry, especially from, from the uh, uh, control room to the, to the, to being a musician on the floor, an arranger, a producer, a writer. He was learning it all. Mm. And when I was invited to do more than just to be an artist at Stacks, I had the benefit of being able to stop whatever I was doing if I had an idea or if I came to the studio with an idea. Steve was going to be there. And he and I formed a relationship that allowed me the comfort of being creative in his space. And that was in Studio A and in that control room. And so if I went to the piano, that was my instrument, and, and played a song for him, I'd have the melody most often. And most of the song finished, you know, we would partner to complete the song. Yeah, yeah. You you and Steve really had uh, a lot of fruitful success in those early days. In, in January of 1964, Volt Records released your second single as an artist, Each Step I Take, and that's one, of course, that you wrote with Steve. And then later that summer, Atlantic Records released I've Got No Time to Lose, uh, yet another song that you co-wrote with, with Steve. But that time, the artist uh, was not... Deanie Parker, but Carla Thomas. And, and that song became a top 20 R&B single in the U.S. It was a, a top 10 R&B hit in the U.K. No time to 
kind of where we see that full transition from, you know, Deanie Parker, the artist, to Deanie Parker, the songwriter, <laughs> one of one of many hats, but but kind of leaving that artist um, role behind more in favor of songwriting. Talk to us a little bit about that transition. Well, Scott, um, being a female black recording artist in the South was not nearly as exciting, appetizing, rewarding as I had imagined that it would be. And it didn't take me long to determine that I didn't want to be on the road because I, I, I was... First of all, the notion of not being able to at least stop at a service station and use the bathroom was unacceptable. Yeah. And the other uh, accommodations that should be afforded anybody, whether you are an artist, a star, a musician, whatever you are, if you're a human being, simply were not available to me. And the fear of traveling the highways in the South at that time, realizing that at any given time, as you were on the highway, probably driving under the speed limit in a new automobile, let me hasten to say that, if you were in a, a desirable automobile, the likelihood of a white sheriff coming out from behind a cotton gin through the cotton field and stopping you for no reason at all other than they had the authority to do so was uh, was was just a little bit more than I could handle. Yeah. It was dangerous. Uh, it was insulting. Uh, and I had uh, my grandfather had gotten me out of Mississippi because of those kinds of situations. And, and I knew better. And I intuitively knew I was not going to succeed in that lane of being a female Black artist, superstar, which is what I wanted to be, great singer in the South. And so I began to identify other opportunities in the industry and for certain I continued my education which was which was a requirement in in my household anyway so sure. I would have gone to college regardless of whether I was on the an artist or whatever but there was nothing about being a, a recording artist being a singer that appealed to me except the act of singing and performing itself. The rest of it, I wouldn't give you a penny for. <laughs> right. At that time. Um, so, so you know, I want to go back, get back to something about the Steve Carper partnership. Yeah. I want you to know that I was such a horrible songwriter that nobody asked me to write with them. You see, <laughs> it, it, it just didn't happen. I was always the one who pursued somebody to wow. write with me. And most often when I was writing with Steve, like on, on uh, No Time to Lose in particular, the song was practically finished when I asked Steve to help me to, to you know, to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, and that's OK, because we had a policy at Stax Records that regardless of how major or minor your contribution might have been to a song, if you were a part of the partnership, 
you shared the writers. Mm, so yeah. that is how a lot of this came about. I, I want to yeah. put the emphasis where it is deserved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, and and I hear in every part of this story, you know, uh, your sort of commitment to the idea, even the jobs that you had there at the end of your high school years and the beginning of your college years, you know, you didn't go and work in a in a clothing store. You worked at a record shop, you know, um, with uh, the Stax Satellite Record Shop with Estelle Axton, who was Jim Stewart's sister and partner in Stax. And then you spent time as a DJ in WLOK in Memphis. I mean, everything that you were doing was was sort of pointed toward this this music passion that you had. Um, uh, you know, working in jobs like that, uh, going back and forth with the public on buying records and seeing what people are responding to at radio, it's almost like you're on the other side of being that radio listener and the things that you were learning by being a listener. Um, how did those jobs that you were working continue to shape your instincts in terms of the music you were creating? Well, uh, Paul, I think that Estelle Axton was my mentor before I even knew the meaning of the word mentor. Hmm. Hmm. And to her credit, she was the point of entry at Stax Records because she was at the record shop, which was located at the entryway to Stax. Hmm. She was a nurturer. Her son, Packy, was a musician. So she had a personal interest because, and she also she was turned on by the music industry. She loved what was happening in that, in that industry. It was so unique to Memphis and, and what have you. And so she recognized being in the community where that old movie theater converted into Stax Records and that housed the satellite record shop. She recognized what the talent potential was in that community. She recognized also from the level of interest of the black kids that would hang out in the record shop that um, they sought an opportunity, not a better opportunity, just a damn opportunity. Hmm, yeah. And so she was, I think she had, you, you, you've heard about people having eyes in the back of your head. That was their spell. <laughs> you know, she knew people yeah. because she gave herself an opportunity to become acquainted with people and not be judgmental just because of the color of their skin. Right. She identified a lot of talent that functioned in every aspect of the business and opened the door for all of us and gave us opportunities. And let's talk a little bit about the record shop. You know, Estelle really was, um, in charge of the R&B division of Stax Records, research and development. Yeah. She uh, heard what all of the other companies were producing and artists and releasing. So she was very much aware of what the trends were in the music industry. And we know that it does change from season to season. She also knew her record buyers, her clients because she kept a little index card, so she knew what their buying huh. practices were. Mm. Wow. And I observed all of these things. You know, that was, that was early research and development, yeah. informal research and development before the computer. And so I had, she also knew that I had an interest in being a radio announcer, because I did so love Martha Jean on WDIA and Willa Monroe, who was the first black 
radio, female radio announcer that I had ever heard. And while I never was offered an opportunity to broadcast on WDIA, WLOK in the OK chain did have an opening for a female announcer or personality. So I disgusted with that still. I said, you know, I think I'm going to apply for this job. She encouraged me to do so. And she said, I'll help you to program it. <laughs> well, I'm right out of high school, headed to college, and it was a homemaker show. And I thought, I don't know anything about homemaking. You know, how am I going to go on this shit? Don't worry about it. I'll equip you with what you need to help you to deal with this homemaker show mid-morning. This was after drive time, of course. Yeah. And she did. But see, the other thing that was was smart about it, there was she knew that if Deanie was on that radio, whatever record she put in my bag, my bag for me to play that day, I was going to play it. And it was filled with stacked songs. (laughs) So (laughs) we were getting a lot, you know, on my shows, stacked records uh, had the, the, you know, the, the run of the, of the lineup. It was music. Yeah. Um, and so at any rate, Estelle and I, uh, we, we, you know, we did girl talk. And, uh, you know, she she would tell me about how displeased she was that we didn't have a male vocal group that could rival the, the male groups that were popular on the East Coast. And she said, you know, we've got some guys around here, William Brown and John Gary Williams and Quincy and these guys. We could, we they're singing already. Let's let why don't we write a song for them? Mm-hmm. I said, okay, what are we gonna write about? And she said, I'll bring you something in the morning. So she brought me a book of poems. This was the oldest book of poems I have ever seen in my life, and <laughs> I never gave it back to her. Uh-huh. And I'm so thankful that I had an opportunity while she still lived to take that book to her and get her an autograph it. At which time I told her, I'm never giving it back to you because <laughs> it was priceless. And, you know, it, I treasure it even today. Wow. But she said, let's keep it simple. Let's just write a song, the title of which will be, I want someone. And I thought, hell, that's really simple. <laughs> that's clear and <laughs> to the point. <laughs> so, you know, I took that and she and I worked on the lyrics. I did the melody. I played on the session. Don't tell anybody because Union will get will shut us down. <laughs> and and um, produced it for mm. the most part. Yeah. Um. But 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 all of the ingredients, all of the talent, all of the expertise, the technicians, everything that was new, and 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 allowed us to be creative at Stax Records was available to me and i just don't know of anybody else that can tell that story yeah um, it's remarkable it's remarkable Uh, and 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 i loved it that estelle and i formed that writing team and we had a hit yeah yeah because she had been trying to get jim stewart to deal with this and he just kind of said oh go on woman you know you know know how you men do us women you know what i'm saying (laughs) so we just band together and decided we're gonna write this song okay (laughs) Right. Well, let's hear a little bit of that song. This is uh, I Want Someone, which became a top 10 R&B hit for the Mad Lads.
1966, Homer Banks released A Lot of Love, and that's a song the two of you wrote together, and it went on to be covered by many different artists as Ain't That a Lot of Love. Um, you know, I, I'd love to hear how that song in particular came together. That is the only song that I remember Homer and I writing together. Hmm. And I can see it as though it happened last night on that big black baby grand piano. It was not where it is usually positioned in Studio A, and I don't know why it wasn't where it always was. But Homer was working on this song, and he he invited me this time. Can you believe that? I didn't have to go to him. He came to me. He had to be desperate. But <laughs> we were working on this song. He had started. He had the first verse. He had the concept. And he said, but I don't have a melody and I don't have a, I don't have a rhythm. So that bass line, that rhythm and the completion of that melody is purely dingy. And of course, Homer was trying to establish himself that time as an artist. I was just trying to find a footing. I was trying to determine where I could go and how far within the music industry without having to go on the road and perform. Mm. As I think about it, that is that is the only explanation I can give to you for my having spent as much time dealing with songwriting. I really believe it was because I was trying to develop that as a major strength and to see how far I could go with it. Wow. Yeah. You yeah. know, as a singer, I know that I wasn't, um, I, I would never have sold a million records. Um, as a songwriter, it's possible. I did, you know, I did okay. I satisfied my soul. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, writing songs, but I was never going to be the Isaac Hayes and David Porter. I was never going to be the Homer Banks, Betty Crutcher um, uh, uh, writer uh, that I might have, or Mac Rice, because I didn't have that hunger. I didn't have that, mm. you know. Mm. My thing really was administrative and, and, and functioning in the administrative end of the business my relaxation, my opportunity to keep my hand in the creative buckets all the time 
had to do with my continuing effort to write songs. It was a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that I could, I don't think that I would have been a successful songwriter if I had been pressured, if I had had to meet mm. a deadline, you know, yeah. the, we got a producer, we got this artist coming in here next week, we need 10 new songs. Right. You know, I, I don't think I could have functioned. I I'm not I guess I could have I had to. But why should I have? I had the best of both worlds, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. I was going to get work with the artists. I was working with the songwriter. I was contributing to the songs. And every now and then when they didn't have anything else to do, everybody was going home. I might have a chance to quasi-produce a song, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you said that in A Lot of Love that that, uh, you, you said the, that rhythm, that bass line, that was pure Dini. Uh, well, a few months after Homer Banks released that record, the Spencer Davis group released Gimme Some Lovin', which borrowed heavily from, from your song. And I think uh, borrowed is the most gracious uh, way to say it. There's probably more accurate and stronger ways to say it. Uh, <laughs> but what was your reaction to to hearing Gimme Some Lovin'? I'm, I'm curious if, if there was any talk around stacks at that time of taking any kind of action because it's, uh, you know, it, it's... It's too close for comfort. Uh, you're very kind to you're very kind to Spencer, the late Spencer, uh, <laughs> to describe it that way. <laughs> because uh Spencer, the Spencer Davis group admitted, and I have the articles where they've been interviewed saying that, you know, they took that from that from from uh, Ain't That a Lot of Love. Yeah. Wow. I can't remember limit, you know, the stack story had us moving so fast all over the place. But I don't remember that Homer and I, let me say, I can't speak for Homer. I never approached or raised the issue. Yeah. It wasn't until Ameriprise Investment Company created a commercial using Give Me Some Lovin' that I was sitting in my sunroom and and that song came on as music under that commercial. And I thought, what the hell? That's my song. Yeah. That's it. That a lot of love. That was really the first time that I heard that song with the kind of clarity that moved me to do something about it. And I can't remember the year, so you're going to have to research that Ameriprise commercial. Yeah. Concord mm. can tell you they had the license. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the years about the racial dynamics at Stax, but not a ton about gender. And, and you've touched on a bit about what it was like to, to be a woman in that environment, trying to work in that environment. You know, most of the songwriters were men. And it sounds like women had to, to, to work extra hard and even use some sort of extra tactics to find themselves in those rooms. Uh, you know, there, there's some things you talked about in the box set, uh, you know, specifically mentioning Betty Crutcher. I, I'd, I'd love to hear um, you tell a bit of, of that story uh, about some of the tactics that, that you guys had to use to, to get your opportunities. Well, first of all, we only had one contracted female songwriter at Stax Records in all of its history, if I, re if I remember. Wow. Wow. And that was Betty Crutcher. Um, a number of us wrote songs at Stax and Stax has the contracts on our songs for the publishing company. 
Right. But Betty was the only uh, female contracted songwriter with whom I am acquainted or was acquainted rather. Mm. Yeah. Stax was a was a male dominated uh, company. And, uh, and 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 that's not um, a complaint. It isn't a criticism because that's just the way that it was in the music industry throughout mm. America yeah. at that time. And I have some theories. I, I don't have any facts, but when I think about Betty and her writing with some of uh, the men and having to negotiate the use of her songs or uh, recording her songs uh, for some of the artists or, with whom they uh, that might have been assigned to them, it, it required a, a different technique, if you will, a different tone. Yeah. Um, you know, men have a different way of communicating with other men. And when a woman is introduced into a room where they're all men, it changes the dynamics. And so songwriting would have been no different. Now, there would have been some subjects about which they were writing where the need to share some sensitivities about a subject that was emotional, uh, how a man treats a woman or how a woman makes a man feel or those kinds of things would have, there, there would have been no problem with it. But I think that there were probably some subjects that were a little bit sensitive and Betty would uh, probably most, she would most likely have written those songs by herself and she would have engaged a musician, Bob Emanuel or whomever it was with whom she might've been working to help her with the melody or to finish it so that it was suitable to, to then become a demo to be mm. presented to the artist that might have been recording it. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense to yeah. you? Yeah. And it sounded like from the, from the liner notes of the, the box set that sometimes she had to employ the old uh, food is the way to the heart method. That was frequently, uh, <laughs> wow. but it but it was effective. And wow. fortunately, Betty was a good cook. She reared three young men, so she knew uh, what was the kind of food that uh, that turned them on. And uh, and so she would just put on an extra pot if wow. she knew that she needed to come to the studio and make a point. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wow. And so, you know, it 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 worked. Uh, and she had a good relationship with the men. Yeah. Um, they respected her because uh, she demanded it. Yeah. And yeah. but even so, she didn't get some of the breaks that the men would have gotten. It wasn't as easy for her to have access mm. as often as the men had it because. The men traveled together. They were together all the time. I mean, informally, formally, whatever. And, and um, you know, it, it was just to the men's advantage. Wow. Yeah. And that comfort level uh, was indescribable man to man. Yeah. You know, so. Well, one of the biggest stars to come out of Stacks, of course, is Otis Redding, and, and he recorded a number of your songs, including New Year's Resolution, You Made a Man Out of Me, and Don't Mess with Cupid. You must have thought my love was so warm, honey. You tried to spend it like a dollar. Uh, 
mentioned before that these arms of mine had been had been a kind of a flashpoint for you hearing that song. And I, I think about your role at Stax. It was so kind of immersive in that you, you're writing songs, you're having to kind of maybe even just overcome that early moment of fandom to now kind of become a collaborator with Otis Redding. But then you also have to play the role of publicist with his sudden death. I'm just... I'd, I'd love to know sort of the, the role all of that played in your life and, and interacting with Otis and then having to operate as a publicist after his untimely passing as well. The first time I heard him was when I was in Ohio hmm. on WLAC. And so he was already in the studio when I got to Memphis. And Otis, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, didn't spend a lot of time in Memphis in the studio because when he came in, it was for a specific time frame. He came in with an agenda, with his songs. All the musicians had been on standby waiting his arrival, and he did not waste a minute uh, in the studio. And I got to tell you, it was phenomenal because the, the musicians and the producers and others who had an engineers and Jim, when they had an opportunity to be in Otis's company, they were all inspired mm. and hanging on to every new thing that he introduced with every session that he had. But he wasn't playing. He was really, I mean, you know, it, he was there to work. He was on a mission. Wow. And as soon as he was done, he was out of there because he was in, he had an engagement someplace or what have you. Otis, he, he died in 67, if I remember correctly, December 10. Yeah. At that time, we were still with Atlanta Records. And so my role as a publicist for Otis was diminished by that. Mm, right. And to say yes there were there were a couple of songs that i delivered well actually all three of them now that i think about the titles all three of them were written with otis in mind and mm. i was just thrilled to have otis redding do those songs and to and to hear the playback you yeah. know uh from the first cut or whatever but i didn't have an opportunity to interview otis about the song and to get in touch with uh the media about it or to talk to the radio personalities about the great Otis Redding. And, and, you know, I just didn't have that opportunity because I was essentially still in training at that point. Mm, yeah. And, yeah. and again, the things that Atlantic records could seize and control in as much as we had that relationship for distribution purposes with them, they did it. You know, they were in the mix. That just prevented me from doing all of the things that I eventually did in yeah. that role as yeah. the purposes. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, not to linger too long on the uh, the the down notes of untimely deaths, but um, you know, a year after uh, Otis's passing, the assassination of Martin Luther King shook the nation and uh, happened right there in Memphis, right down the street, where you know the impact was perhaps most strongly felt. Uh, tell us a bit about that night after Dr. King was killed and the role that that music played for you in in just coping with that moment. Oh, 
Um, the only role that I remember that the music played in that whole time was a very dangerous thing that Betty Crutcher and I did. Uh, because we had already made a date with each other to work in the studio the evening of his assassination, I think we were so shell-shocked about his assassination that we, we, we didn't have the capacity to think rationally. And we needed something to help us to adjust to what we had experienced earlier in the day and Estelle had closed the record shop out of respect for Dr. King. And, you know, uh, everybody was on high alert, wondering what next. And soon we saw the National Guard. And uh, she and I decided that we were going to go ahead with our plans and write a song, uh, de develop a, a, a song, finish writing a song that uh, we had begun writing for Albert King. And it was a fun song. Mm. The title of it was uh, Pop Roach. You've got Nobody else in that studio on the corner of college and Macklemore in Memphis, Tennessee, except Betty Crutcher and Deanie Parker. Hmm. And then we heard these sounds on the roof. And it frightened us. And we couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And so we then went to the front door that had a glass window, just a small glass window, the size of one pane, maybe uh, 16 by 16 at the largest, and peeped out and we saw the National Guard and a guardsman saw us. Hmm. Uh, we had not intended to have been discovered, but then we had to open the door and admit that we were inside and explained why we were there. Wow. And they gave us the time to gather our things and to exit the building. And what we did not know was that those song, those sounds that we heard on, on the top of the, on the roof of the building were the National Guardsmen who had gone up there because they had turned that entire uh, block uh, between Neptune and College on Macklemore, both sides of the streets, into what they call a bivouac. Wow. We should not have been there, but we we didn't know what else to do. We yeah. were, you know, we were hurting. We were frightened about what might be happening in Memphis. The man had just been killed, and it was it was disconcerting, you know. Yeah. Wow. Well. Continuing to speak of Dr. King, I, I want to fast forward to more recent years when you co-wrote a song called I Am a Man that was a theme song for a 2009 documentary short film of the same name, and it, you earned an Emmy Award for it. Um, 
I'm curious, you know, you mentioned earlier that you, you have melodies in your head all the time. And had you been writing songs consistently at that point since the Stax days? Or was that kind of a return to songwriting for you uh, there in the early 2000s? Well, Paul, I think that I was uh, not in my right mind <laughs> when I agreed to do that. No, <laughs> I, you know, I, let me just give you a little background information. The sanitation workers in all the time that had passed after Dr. King's assassination, the what was then the Convention and Visitors Bureau decided we really ought to celebrate these men. And I was uh, the chairperson of their volunteer component. They had a foundation. And, uh, and I said to the person with whom I was working at the bureau, it would be regrettable if we don't capture interviews with all of these remaining sanitation workers because they're all up in age when I went back to them, it was with a proposal to do a documentary, and we should title it, I Am a Man. And they agreed. And it was the most fulfilling creative experience that I had had since having left Stax Records. Wow. wow. And I think I was so emotionally tied to the project, and it was just so grand that I opened mouth and inserted foot when I agreed when I agreed to write the title song and I stayed up day and night because I had not written a song since I left Stax Records no that's not true I had written one other but not since I had come back to Memphis had I written because I left Memphis after Stax was forced into involuntary bankruptcy when I came back this was the first song let me say it that way that I had written and so I wrote that song wow and the other two writers, uh, Bernardo and Fred, are in my family. And it was all about encouraging them and including them as well. Yeah. So Scott Beaumont, not you, Scott, but my real <laughs> Scott, the authentic <laughs> Scott Beaumont. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had his recording studio and... Uh, and I asked him if we could, if he would work with us to get it done. He said, sure. And I, I, I enjoy working with Scott. Um, and so I went to his studio and I, and he helped me to put the musicians together. And I said, I have one condition here. I want the vocalist to be a young person hmm. close to the heart of this. And he said, who is it? I said, I want you to get in touch with Betty Crutcher's grandson. His name is Devin Crutcher. Hmm. He is a local vocalist, performer, entertainer. Find out if he will do the vocals on this. And Devin willingly did it. And I did background with him. You know, I doubled on, on something. No. I played the piano on the song, Poor Scott. Poor Scott Beaumont. I know he thought, Lord, just get this woman off of this rose. <laughs> he poured it. <laughs> anyway, it was a fun effort. Oh, I am a man. Oh, I am a man. 
Coming back to the to the Stax demos box set, uh, the liner notes that you co-wrote with Robert Gordon say the collection is quote unveiling not only a new understanding of songwriting but also a new reservoir of lost songs. And you know some of those lost songs are your own songs. And just wanted to quickly ask you about a couple of them that are uh, included on the box set, and and you know your your quick thoughts on. Uh, you know, what, what hearing those again may be brought up for you, but uh, one would be uh, Spin It, which is actually you performing on the demo and, uh, and, and kind of intended to be a, a, a dance record. remember a thing about that i must have been drinking margaritas that evening <laughs> when, it, when it all came up well that's how you write a dance record that's good <laughs> i do remember the song but what inspired me to do it I, I i don't have a clue except that i probably had this melody and that rhythm and 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 there we must have had some downtime in the studio. Everybody must have been bored when they let me in there to do it. <laughs> uh, but it really was fun. You know, yeah. it was fun. I never, ever thought that I would hear it again. And I and, and, and I didn't have a vision of it being released. Uh, I should like to think that the effort was because I had wanted someone to do the song. Right, yeah. you know, but I don't know for whom. I it, I don't remember that it was written for any anybody specific. So that just lets me know that what I did was to seize an opportunity to realize a song finished at the place that I love with all my heart, mind, and soul, and that was Stax Records. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, another uh, song on there, you mentioned earlier that Mac Rice didn't tune his guitar uh, from, from the time he arrived at Stags to when he left. Uh, I think we have recorded proof of that on the demo of uh, Nobody Wants to Get Old, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, a song that, that the two of you wrote together.
clear on the demo that it, it, it ain't perfect, but you know, that's what a demo is for. It's supposed to be a demonstration, uh, not a record. And it, it captures, you know, it captures that moment in time and captures a rough sketch of the song. Uh, would love to, to get your thoughts on that song as well. Well, my immediate thought, Scott, is that I am so glad that a person with your expertise was the only person with whom I have had to discuss this. Because when people listen to that, and even after Cheryl decided to put it on here, I thought, oh, my legacy is ruined. This <laughs> event is over. <laughs> you know, and then I had the audacity. To sing that song with Matt, I don't know, you know, we had, (laughs) (laughs) it was just too wild because yes, the guitar was out of tune and the tune that you heard there was the tune that he had it tuned to when he arrived and when he left. (laughs) And we should, you know, we were, we had that title, Nobody Wants to Get Old. Uh, for some reason or another, we felt very passionately about it. We must have, we must have been, I don't know, trying to get over arthritis or something that day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we decided to just write the song, and that's how good songs or mediocre songs or hit songs are written. You're in, something gets your attention, something mm. tugs at your heartstrings. Something yeah. turns you on. You got a message. You got something you want to say, and you turn it into a song. And this was one of those songs. <laughs> no, yeah. it, nobody wants to get old, you know. <laughs> and and I and I am a witness. But we certainly don't want to die, you know. So. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I think for for guys like us in particular, and and I hear this complaint um, from from people in my life all the time that that a lot of the stuff we hear nowadays, music wise, is just too clean, um, and trying to hear the humanity in it is is difficult. And it's honestly, to me, it's refreshing to hear. It's refreshing to hear demos. It's refreshing to hear songs that have you know that that humanity and them warts and all. Um, there's something that kind of leaps out of the recording at you and says, "Hey, here's another human." Um, and, uh, out of tune or not, it's, it's a great listen for me. Well, Paul, you have, um, you have opened a can of worms (laughs) (laughs) because I agonize every freaking day about the fact that what we are forced to listen to Hmm. because the industry drives us. They have taken us hostage, those of us who wish to be creative songwriters and artists and others. And they're doing everything on the cheap, Mm. which discourages aspiring musicians to learn to master their instruments. Mm. I see it every day in, in the students with whom we work. They want to do it quickly. They want to push a button, get a beat, push a button. Hit a melody, and I'm all for that, provided that you understand, first of all, how to play your instrument, Hmm. how to sing in tune, until we get back to creating spaces where we can invite youngsters to be curious about what it is they're listening to when they put on written in their soul, for example, those Mm. demos. 
if they you want them to be curious enough about it that they will want to emulate authentically how it was we came up with those songs, how we wrote those songs and what the finished piece was. We're never going to have these kinds of songs, demo or finished product again that touches your soul, that excites you and what have you that we had when we were at Stax Records. It breaks my heart. Mm, You know, you got to immerse yourself in it. And that's what happened to me. I was immersed in it. I, yeah. I had to be a product of it, I, you know, but I was immersed in it by choice. Mm. And that is what I call real music. Yeah. Some of the art, performing arts that are vocalized, that we are forced to listen to today might have a message. And I'm not poo-pooing that. Mm. You know, every generation has its what they call music, but in my in my layman's terms, it's not music. Mm. It may be rhythm and rhyme, but it's not music because I can't hum for you the melody once the song ends, and my ears are not trained to understand the lyrics. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know, although there are some some great messages and some messages that are chronicling our history, and we use music as a protest. We use music. As as a as a mean a tool of affection and you know all of those those things that music can mean to us but your whole body your mind your brain your heart your soul is not being stimulated if you can just push a button and get what you want yeah. it does not work like that yeah 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 Deanie we want to thank you so much we over the years have have had uh, Steve Cropper on the show David Porter's been on we've had William Bell we've had Eddie Floyd but I feel like talking to you has sort of completed you know you bring a little bit different perspective as one of the few uh, women writers who was at Stax and and someone who wore a lot of different hats there I feel like we've sort of had an opportunity to to com- complete the picture in a way and in a, in a fresh way with this interview. And so we are uh, just thrilled to have had a chance to speak with you and, and have you fill in some of those details and hear more of, of your story. We can't thank you enough for, for sharing some time with us. I am delighted. I thank you so much. Your questions have been riveting. And so I hope I have answered them in a way that you will find useful. Thank you so much, guys. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 